Andrea Miller, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. Today, my guest is a woman with a story and voice that is equally challenging and encouraging. D.L. Mayfield is a writer and activist who has spent over a decade working with refugee communities in the United States. D.L. Mayfield is an unapologetic truth teller devoted to loving God and her neighbors well. In her newest book, The Myth of the American Dream, she examines our misaligned pursuit of the American dream, but also points us to a better way of how we can love God and our neighbors in tangible ways. Her message can be hard and convicting, but ultimately hers is a message of hope, community, and healing that calls us to love a broken world and realize that Jesus calls us to an upside-down kingdom. DL, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much. Well, I know that you have had an early start to your day because you're two hours ahead of me. Um, so I really just appreciate with your two little ones that you joined me today. Oh, I'm happy. It's nice to be like, you guys should go watch Sesame Street while mommy goes and yes, talks exactly. to the computer. Having, exactly. <laughs> We're having uh, some, a little bit of an adult time conversation. So exactly. let's, my listeners know your professional bio, but can you just introduce yourself where you live, your kids, uh, all of that? Yeah. So I live kind of on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. And so if you have a conception of, you know, like Portlandia, I don't live in that part of Portland. Okay. Um, okay. I live in a neighborhood that's mostly low-income families, a lot of immigrant and refugee families. Uh, and I've lived in sort of these kinds of neighborhoods for the past uh, 14 years of my life. Uh, and we'll probably get into that part of my story a little yeah. bit. Um, I do have my master's of teaching English to speakers of other languages, and I specialize in teaching literacy to people who've never um, had prior access to education. So it's like quite the niche, but yeah. there's definitely still people in our in our world who um, have experienced that. And yeah, I have two kids. I have a son who just turned five, and then I have a daughter who's nine, and we are adjusting to being at home all the time, like I'm sure everybody is. I am like a huge neighborhood busybody and yes. it's just been a hard time for me <laughs> the past two months just you know I always thought like oh something terrible went down I'm just so happy to be in my neighborhood yeah. with my neighbors and then just the sadness of being like well I can drop you off a bag of flour but I cannot come in and sit right. down for three hours and drink a cup of chai and so yeah. it's been and, rough and I thought about just reading your book the last week of like that's such a big part of your life and story oh. is your interaction with your neighbors and oh. loving them face to face and I thought this has got to be really really hard for your story and situation and loving it's how you do it's horrible and, and in particular I mentioned the literacy thing because yeah, the neighbors I really like invested in are people who um, they just have more barriers when it comes to like technology and, and all this stuff. And so, you know, we try, <laughs> we try to do FaceTime and stuff like yeah. that, but it just, it's not natural and normal and we all can't wait for the day uh, we can just physically be with each other again because that's how we have been doing it for so long. So, yeah. 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 And we'll dive, let's, we'll dive back into that because again, that's just so showing how privilege is coming through in this whole quarantine and isolation that how mm -hmm. much harder it is for some people than it is for others. So yes. we'll, we'll jump back into that when we talk about why you live where you do intentionally. So before we do all that, let's 
just take us back to the start of your story, your origin story. I read in one of your books, it said, I was from everywhere and nowhere. And that sums up a lot of your childhood. So tell us about that. Tell us about your childhood and what you mean by that. Yeah, so I was raised, uh, my dad was a pastor, so I was a pastor's kid. Uh, me and my two sisters were homeschooled for much of our life. I ended up being homeschooled much longer than my sisters because I just really enjoyed it, and I just wanted to do other things during the day than uh, sit in school. And so, and your mom did unschooling, so, you know, right? Yeah, half the time. Yeah, yeah, and so, then the other half was like a Becca books, which are, okay. oh, okay, or, or well, like yeah. um, <laughs> Saxon math, you know, like really intense right. math one year. Uh, and then the uh, next yeah. year, like nothing. <laughs> okay, so I didn't know the other part. Yeah, that's a hard balance. I thought it was just all in schooling, but if she's, but if it she's... was, <laughs> it was fine for me. I mean, I'm I'm quite the self directed learner, and so uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it was fine for me. But we okay. did move around a lot. My dad would usually work at like a very small church and sort of build it up. And then in like two to three years, he would, he would move on to the next place. It was mostly places like Wyoming and Alaska and Oregon and Northern California. And so, yeah, I think I just absorbed a little bit of this pioneer narrative, right? Like mm -hmm. I just come from like, yeah, I come from everywhere and nowhere and I just go on to the next thing and not beholden to anyone. And, and I think actually in my second book, I really start to explore some of the mythology of the pioneer mindset because, mm -hmm. you know, Thomas Merton writes a lot about these two narratives that white people in the United States have. And one is like the plantation owner myth and one is the pioneer myth. And I think our culture, you know, we kind of know what to do with the plantation owner myth, right? We can say like, oh, that's bad and you shouldn't have slaves. And, and right. me now being in Oregon and stuff, it's really easy for us to be like, oh, I'm so glad we're not like those people. But right. in reality, we have this pioneer myth to contend with that still elevates us over the original inhabitants of the land that still says we were the ones who got or day to come and take mm -hmm. what we could, you know, as we move yep. forward, all yep. that stuff. So, and that's a huge part of my, of my second book, I think is, is grappling more with that narrative. And that's just because the older I get, the more I want to understand my culture and context, because I, I think being someone who is white and evangelical Christian in the U.S., you know, I do come from the dominant culture. And so yeah. for me growing up, it was definitely like, we don't have a culture, you know, we just read the Bible and we do it says. Right, right. And, uh, and we read Little really... House on the Prairie books. That's what spoke to me yeah. too. And they're so romanticized. And it's like, same here. And then I went and did that with my 10-year-old. I'm like, wait, what? I don't remember it saying all this. Like once your eyes are open to how wrong that narrative is. So yeah, that I can relate to that part of your story too. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I, I don't want to be seen as like shaming it. So like even Little House on the Prairie is such a good example, right? Of if you just come from the dominant culture, you're like, yeah, this is an incredible work of mm -hmm detailing what it was like back then. And then I had the exact same experience trying to read it with my daughter and being like, oh my gosh, I did not realize Ma was so freaking racist and like literally called all Native American savages who were there to kill her. When I'm like, uh -huh. but you're the one who came and took their land. Like there wasn't right. even any right. discussion of that. And, and so again, it's like we, I don't, I'm not really interested in just saying like all white people should feel shamed all the time. I'm just saying if we read Little House on the Prairie, then we should probably also read 
read books written by Native Americans about right. that exact same period of time because otherwise we are truly just saying there's only one viewpoint that matters and we know which one it is. And I think that's sort of like the underlying sentiment of the dominant culture, right? Is our perspective is the only one that matters. Right. And, and I think it's not even a perspective. It's just the truth, right? Right. I, I think I remember a line in your most recent book, The Myth of the American Dream, talking about like, if we really want to know the history, like we need to hear the stories of the people that haven't written it. And that really stuck with me too. So true. Yeah. Or they've written it and we've just, you know, yes. chosen not to read it. Exactly. Yeah. So going back to your childhood. So you were raised in a very devout conservative Christian home. And uh-huh. I know you were felt a calling to missions. You felt like your role, you were intent in saving lives of everyone, yeah. which is not an uncommon desire, not really a bad thing. But tell me kind of how that played out in your life, because I know that did not go as planned. Yeah. So I did want to be a missionary starting from age six. And and my mom really raised us on these stories of missionary biographies. And many of them were women. And so coming from a denomination where women aren't allowed to be in leadership, uh, but they were allowed to be missionaries, I think as an intense little kid, I was like, oh, then that's what I should do, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm an intense person. and, And this is where I see these single solitary ladies you know, sailing off uh, to save everyone. And so I ended up going to Bible college and, you know, getting my degree in Bible theology and intercultural studies. And while I was going to Bible college, I started volunteering with recently arrived Somali Bantu refugees here in Portland. And my goal was sort of like to practice on people, like practice evangelizing before, you know, I could go overseas and start my real life. And and so all of this is like so terribly problematic Mm -hmm. in retrospect. And I think one of the things that now makes me feel kind of sad is uh, I was 19 years old and everybody around me, you know, my professors, like all these books, they truly were just reinforcing this idea that I had everything about God figured out. And I should go and convert everyone to be just like me, you know, and I'm I'm like 36. I'm like, I feel like God and the world is very mysterious and I don't know what's happening. And I Mm -hmm. really would like to be pursuing God together with a lot of other people. Uh, But that's not how I felt at 19, right? It's like, I have this on lockdown. Let me go show you the Jesus film. Let me try and tell you the four spiritual laws. And, you know, it did not go over well. These were people who come from a completely different background. You know, many of them were non-literate. They're Muslim. They're tribal. They're collectivists. Uh, They were very, very poor. And they were having a horrible time in the United States just meeting their basic needs. And so me just bursting in there. They're just like, okay, that's great. You're a Christian. We're Muslim. Uh, can you help us figure out how to pay this bill? You know? Yeah, and I was like, yeah. what? What now? Like you were supposed to convert to be just like me. And, and then if you don't convert, I'm supposed to like go on to the next crew of people and try and convert them. Yeah, right? that's, and the, that, that's the path. And that just, it really made me think deeply and resonate. I have a, like I was told, told you earlier, I have a 17 year old who also feel called, feels called to the mission field. And your story is so typical of how we're raising our kids in the American church of this is how you do mission work. You go into the country, you tell them about your God, your Jesus, and you change them. Or you meet with people here, refugees, and you tell them about your God, you try to convert them. And your story is very eye-opening of really, is that is that what we should be doing? And I mean, just like you talked about showing the Jesus film, do you mind just sharing a little bit of that? Because you share about it in your book. And that was eye-opening incident that really, I think, really was pivotal in changing your, kind of opening your eyes. Yeah. It, it, you know, those. I think I had been working with this family and I ended up volunteering through Catholic Church charities and was assigned to work with this one family and do some English language.
college stuff with the mom in this one family, but I ended up meeting a bunch of the families in this one complex. I did show them the Jesus film in the Somali language, but you know, there's so much I didn't know. And and this particular group of people were actually, you know, Somali was not their first language. Their first language was a language called Mai Mai, and it was not even a written language at that point. And so they had actually been oppressed in Somalia and had been sort of the subservient class of people. And so I was actually showing them the Jesus film in the language of their oppressors. You know, it's like this whole complicated thing. But at the very end, you know, basically the leader of the community just looked at me and, and we didn't have very much shared language. And so he just kind of held his hands up and he held up, like he just said, Isa, you know, Jesus is here. And he kind of held his hand up, you know, around his chest. And then he said, but Muhammad is up here. And he put his hand mm. up over his head and that was just it. And I was like, okay, this conversion thing isn't happening. Right. So right. I felt like a failure. And I felt like going back to my classes at Bible college, I felt like such a failure. But at this exact same time, I really felt like the spirit of God was telling me to keep going back and just sit yeah. on these couches and just keep showing up and go with them to the WIC offices and go with them on their appointments and and try and, and answer the phone when these like predatory lenders would call them and, and try and embezzle money from them and just keep showing up even though it was becoming increasingly clear there were so many barriers to these communities ever 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 ending up just like me and that and that failure was so important right for my own spiritual revelation i was i was actually invited into a long-term relationship with people who were suffering in my city i was and i was being invited into a long-term relationship with my neighbors that's like the core of the christian religion you know right and that is a huge part of your message and it's uncomfortable reading your book and your message because it's it's convicting because we we know we're supposed to love our neighbors as Christians and we've taken it very lightly. And you bring up, I remember it well too, like the whole turquoise table thing. Let's invite our neighbors over. And you're not trashing that idea, but you're taking it much deeper. And I believe the level that Jesus really wants. Tell just a little bit about your convictions with that and why you, and so you're intentionally living where you do. And like you said, in apartments with refugees. And so just dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I don't actually live in apartments right now, but I ended up buying a house around the corner from an apartment we lived in for a while, Okay. you know, in our neighborhood in Portland. And yeah, I think it's, I think we should be intentional about where we live because we can really only love so many people well, you know? And yeah. so I, I I'm trying to pick those people on purpose and I I just love my neighborhood for one. Um, it does have some like stigma attached to it and there are some really real systemic things that make life incredibly hard for people. But no matter where we live in the United States, you know, you're going to be living in a segregated society. You know, your city is probably going to be segregated by both race and class. And that's just the reality. And so I, again, I'm not trying to trash these things, but, but when I hear Christians engaging in this idea of hospitality and reaching out and loving your neighbors, uh, you know, there is that uh, story of a woman who got a picnic table, painted it bright turquoise, put it out in her yes. front yard, and her neighbors started to come and congregate and gather. And it's just this amazing story. And I think that's great. But that is only scratching the surface because the reality is, is that segregation is baked into our mortgage contracts. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Segregation is baked into where we choose to live based on school test scores and rating sites. You know, segregation is baked into who gets a loan, who, who gets caught up in predatory landlord situations, all yeah. this stuff. And so I, I just feel like, yes, And I don't please. think so many 
white evangelicals, white Americans are aware of that. I mean, unless you're intentionally, you, you share about the redlining and all of that in your book, but it, this is a real thing. We are still so segregated and loving your neighbor. And I am just to blame. I mean, I mean, I am a white middle-class woman like you, and I have not intentionally put myself out there. And it was, your book is a hard read because like the education part, like you're intentionally putting your kids in schools that are not considered the top. And I am guilty as charged of finding, trying to find the best schools for my girls to put them in. And that's a hard, yeah. hard thing. And I, I, I don't want to minimize how hard it is. I am really interested in sort of mining the grief. I think that mm -hmm. can happen when you're someone like me who does come from this middle-class background to be like, oh my gosh, the entire way I've oriented my life has actually put me on this trajectory, like away from the places that Jesus said he was going to be working yeah. in. And yeah. so it's okay to be like, my life is on this trajectory, like truly. And I am now starting to grieve some of the relational losses that happen yeah. when I am upwardly mobile, right? I am going to miss out on, on the work of God in my city. That's how I feel. To be I know. And it, I mean, it's a total paradigm shift. And it, I mean, like you, somewhere you mentioned, like we're taught growing up, like to be striving for power and affluence and all those things that the American dream tells us. And now to shift that yeah. is really and, a hard mindset. And, you know, I think motives are always mixed. And so even like when it comes to power or like putting your kids in the best school, you know, we, we truly believe we're going to use that for good. Right. And yeah. I, I think that's where it gets a little tricky sometimes is we do have to go back to the scriptures and be like, is that something that Jesus ever tells us to do, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> to get to the very top in order to use it for good? Or is the story of Jesus, one of modeling like self-sacrificial neighbor love to the point of death. Like this is really hard. Like Christianity is really hard. I don't pretend to have it all figured out or anything like that. But we do, as Christians, we get to be invited into these really difficult conversations. So like when it comes to the school choice thing, it's such a heated topic mm -hmm. and people's, you know, situations are really different. And so we can't, I, I feel like I'm trying not to make these blanket statements, but I will say this, this question that keeps coming back to haunt me is in a, in a segregated and unequal society, right? Where there is this scarcity of resources, like whose kids should be attending the lowest rated school? Yeah. Like all of us need to ask ourselves that question. I think instead we tend to ask ourselves like, well, how can I make sure my kids get into the best possible place I can get them in, right? That's yeah. just a normal question that most of us ask, but how can we flip that in its head? In our minds, which kids should be going to the worst school? And, and that if we flip it on its head, even if you are like, well, not mine, at least hopefully you'll be able to feel these threads of responsibility connecting you to those kids and say, yes. whatever the worst school is in this neighborhood, like, let's make it awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, let's start to target this extreme inequality. But the thing that sucks is when you start to do that, is you start to realize, oh, this is all very much on purpose. And you start to delve into that whole issue of, yeah, so it gets really complicated. I'm not going to It does. Lie. No, it's all very complicated. And going back to what you said, your book is not like trashing on all these systems or people are doing you. Your book really invites us to take a really deep look at what it means to be a Jesus follower and what we're doing and what our actions are and how those are aligning with, you know, the American dream versus following Jesus. And one of the things you talk about is which so many things struck me and I highlighted, but 
being blessed. And I, I, that's something I've poured over the last year too, of like, what does this mean to have a blessing? We so often throw that around like, oh, God's blessed you with money or God's blessed you with this or that. But you dive into that too, of really who, do, who Jesus says is blessed. And I know that was kind of a life, oh, a pivot point for you as well. Would you talk just about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic. So you, so you let me know if I've, I've covered it enough. But I, I, I think at one point in the book, I do talk about this Joel Osteen sermon where he was talking about like if his kids came up on the stage and they're dressed yes. in all these raggedy clothes and they were like dirty and looked poor, then everybody would judge him to be a bad dad. And he's like, you know, God is the same way. God doesn't want us to look poor or raggedy. And <laughs> I just like, I just thought about that sermon a lot and just thinking about all my friends I have, you know, who've experienced forced migration, people who are refugees, people who've experienced like the worst the world has to offer, you know, people in my own city of Portland who have been discriminated against, you know, African-American families here in Portland for so many decades and decades and decades and just thinking to myself, does this mean God hates them? <laughs> like, yeah, if, yeah. if they are suffering, it, you know, does that mean that they've done something to make God angry at them? Like when you right. really kind of take that theology all the way out, right? It just heaps more burden and more shame on those who are not making it in the landscape yeah. of the American dream. And so for me, it's such a double-edged sword. If you are somebody who is wealthy and is healthy and has all this stuff going for you, you can start to believe like, wow, this must be because of something I did. And maybe because of my prayers or maybe because of this essential oil I take, you know what I right, mean? You can, right. There's a lot of things we can do to, to convince ourselves that it was because of something we did that we earned our blessing. And so then you get to believe that about yourself. And then you get to either ignore or scorn people who are not able to make it because of systemic issues. And so you're able to sort of say, I don't actually have to engage in that reality anymore. They're just not being blessed by God because of something they've done. So to me, it's like such a double-edged sword that we really need to engage with. And I, yes. I don't really see that in scripture too much. I mean, there is some of that in there. I think what's interesting, like the Hebrew scriptures, for example, you know, it says so much about money and wealth. And the number one thing theme that comes with money and wealth is that wealth is a blessing from God. Sort of coming back to this idea that is we really can't like take our own ownership of it. You know, all of this comes from God. God right. gives, God takes. Right. But then the number two thing that the scriptures say about wealth is that it can make you forget the poor in your midst. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to live with that tension is that the material things we have, you know, they're both a blessing and they also make us forget our responsibility to our neighbors, especially those who are marginalized. And we have to keep both of those in our mindset, I think, at all times. Yeah. And we all know, I mean, as Christians, we know the verses that Jesus spoke that said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those that weep and those that weep. And why do you think, <laughs> I don't know, why, we look over that. We just glance over that. But it, and we call blessings by so many other names. And you even said in your book, in this kingdom, the people I had been taught to save and redeem were the ones that were blessed according to Jesus. And that's powerful. Yeah. I, I think one of the reasons we gloss over it is because we are, you know, <laughs> I'll just speak for myself. One of the reasons I gloss over it is because I'm not poor. And mm -hmm. so when I read that verse, blessed are the poor, you know, I was sort of raised to be like, oh, poor in spirit. You know, that just means yeah. like, you know, we all have sin and we all have stuff and blah, 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 you know. And in reality, it's like, okay, Jesus was talking to a crowd of people where the vast majority of the culture 
was, you know, had subsistence level living in this economic system where most of them truly didn't know where their next meal was coming from, right? Like the vast majority of people were like, I hope I have enough food for my family the next day. And Jesus is saying to them, blessed are you. What does that mean? They knew that they weren't blessed economically or socially or, you know, think about if you were a woman in in those times, right? When you were basically the same as an animal and and listening to Jesus say like, you are blessed by God. I I think for people Mm -hmm. like me, it's really hard to believe that all throughout the scriptures, there is a clear preference for the poor in scripture. And um, there's a lot of hard words for the rich. And so I think it makes sense that we want to devalue all of these, both about the rich and the poor because it makes us so uncomfortable. And I don't have a solution for that. Except that in the long term, Jesus says he's good news for everybody. And so that includes the rich. If we can do, if we can actually follow the words of Jesus and begin to voluntarily give up of what we have and to be the hands and feet of Jesus to, you know, seek the shalom and the flourishing of everyone around us. But that means we are going to have to give up things. We don't get to keep it all and be blessed. We get to give it away and be blessed. And I think, well, I don't think I know that you know this so well because you have intentionally put yourself with, quote, the least of these, the refugees, those that are living on the margins. So do you think you would have changed so dramatically your paradigm had you not been living with your neighbors that you live with? No. And I think that it's just been, you know, 14 years of basically putting myself in a situation where I cannot wiggle my way out of uh, acknowledging my own privilege, you know, sort of like what's happened for me. But, you know, not everybody can nor nor should they do this. And so I I think it's a very exciting time as far as like social media allowing us to interact and learn from people that maybe we wouldn't have had a chance to be, you know, under their teaching. And so we can read books by people who come from, you know, non-dominant culture. We can read like theological comments from people from marginalized communities. We can follow people on social media that really challenge us and we can like watch what they're saying on Twitter and feel like so upset and so confronted. But at the same time, we get to do that inner work and we don't have to like spew our discomfort out (laughs) to our actual neighbors. So, you know, we have this awesome opportunity to lean into discomfort where we are and and start to learn from other people. And, And for me, you know, with my, you know, my ideas of being a missionary, I feel like it's going to be a lifelong journey for me of being like, I have to sit down and listen. I I think I'll always struggle with wanting to uh, get it all right and and tell other people. I mean, look at me. I'm writing freaking books about the myth of the American dream. So I obviously still struggle <laughs> well, with this idea of like, I should be saying something out there. Uh, but listen girl, to if other you're, people. If you're struggling, then oh my goodness, don't even. <laughs> I, there's no hope for me. <laughs> No, but I think that's a good point because like after reading your book, I thought like, what am I supposed to do? Like my husband is not going to move. Like it's just a really, but like you said, there's, we're not all going to just move and live next door to refugees, but there's so much more. And I appreciate you 
saying those steps that we can do. It is asking those hard questions, intentionally putting ourselves with people that are not like us, reading stories that are not like us, using our privilege. And so that's kind of what I want to ask you as far as the book, The Myth of the American Dream. Like, what was your goal in writing that? Like, when did you think, I, this, I need to write this book, and here's why, and who's my audience? Yeah, it was... Uh, it wasn't like a fun book to write, but it's it not was, necessarily the funnest book to read either, but it is I a know. worthwhile read. <laughs> I know. I've definitely gotten that feedback. Um, <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way either. I want my listeners to read your book because it's so necessary and challenging. Yeah. I was just on a podcast where the the host just kept saying, this is so excruciating to read like <laughs> okay. over and over again. I was like, I was like, oh. okay, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Maybe. <laughs> right, I, don't know. I don't right. know. Um, but yeah, I, I did try to end the book on a hopeful note because, um, as much as like I've experienced the Holy Spirit in my life as a force of conviction, right. And, and inviting me into these hard tension filled conversations, like there's also a lot of joy and creativity that we get to experience as soon as we sort of move beyond that. Wow. This all sucks. Wow. What happens next? Like what is going on? You know, as soon as we can sort of taking these little steps forward, we will, we will find these amazingly creative ways to enter into a way of living that is really focused on everybody flourishing. And so yeah. I, I kind of try to end my my book with a lot of these stories of people yeah. just being so creative yes. in how they are contributing to the flourishing of their community. And I don't want to give it all away, but right. I think my favorite story is this guy, and I think I call him Carl in the book, and, and he uh, was in a neighborhood where he did have a lot of neighbors who uh, came from a Latino community and, and they would get, you know, pulled over for speeding tickets and all these things would happen to them that never happened to him, you know, as a white dude. And so he would just like dress up in a suit and take a briefcase and go to their like court appearances with them. And whenever wow. he would go with his friends, all of a sudden they would get all their charges dropped, you know, <laughs> and wow. they would get to yeah. just go free without any fines just because mm -hmm. of his presence showing up. He was not a lawyer, but he was like, you know, dressing yeah. like one. And then my favorite part of the story is like, like after he would leave the courtroom or, or uh, you know, wherever with his friends, they would go out and he would open his briefcase and it was just full of Doritos, like bags of Doritos. Mm -hmm. And then he would just eat them with his friends. Mm -hmm. And like, I think about that suit, that briefcase full of Doritos an awful lot because <laughs> to me, that's such an amazing picture of what it means to subvert, you know, a, uh -huh. a system that is designed to punish certain people it's like yes it needs to we need to bring it down and we can actually have fun and connect with people as we are doing this yes. i know that sounds weird but i also have a chapter in my book about disneyland and i know it's you super do. weird i know i was so glad and, that you just went and enjoyed that but i know there's more to that story <laughs> but, but yeah i mean it's it's just this funny thing that i want to be like we are we are real complicated people. We, mm -hmm. we experience this full range of human emotion. And yes, obviously, as you can already tell from this interview, I can talk a lot about all that is wrong in our world. And I also love Disneyland. And I'm also interested in wondering like, well, why do I love that? And what am I drawn to in Disneyland? And how can I start to say, huh, how can I open up that desire I have for flourishing, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and open it up to everybody in my life. So I definitely don't think we need to have these lives filled of, you know, just angst and despair. I think we will also experience joy. And I, I think, you know, there's this flip side, right? 
for as, as we're thinking about how to take next steps, you can think about what is really upsetting you, you know, in the world. Yeah. And you can also think about what brings you joy and how can you invite others into that experience. And, and I want to yeah. keep both of those values, I think, in my mind as I go through this. And that's the other thing is like, sometimes people are like, I can't believe you live in your neighborhood. I'm like, well, I can't believe you live in yours because yeah. when I drive through the suburbs, I'm like, they seem so lonely and everybody, they don't even know their neighbors. I feel so safe because all my neighbors know me. We all have each other's back. We are sort of forced to rely on each other because we don't have public parks. And if we want to see a change happen at our school, like we all need to work together to get it. And so I am like bonded to my neighbors. And, and it's, and it's clear talking to you. I mean, you, you are joy field, joy and Holy Spirit field, filled, filled, filled. Gosh, I can't say easy for me to say, but really it's not this drudgery. Like, like we said, your book is a hard read, but it's clear that you are just being so intentional and filled with the Holy Spirit of calling out what Jesus wants us to be doing. And your life is fuller because of it. I know one of the things I was going to ask, were, when we talk about the tension in the book, one of the things that stuck with me is you said, now you felt this calling obviously to be a missionary, and you say that you still have not converted one single Muslim, and that, and you're okay with that, and that's going to not be an easy thing to settle with a lot of people who are Christians or feel called to the mission field. How is that okay? I think... I'm not sure I would say I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay with me not converting anybody. Yeah. I yeah. am not okay on putting limits at what the spirit of God will do, yes, you know? Good. And so I never want to say that the, I'm okay with all of us just staying exactly how we are because yeah. that's not what I want for myself. I think the fundamental thing that has change for me is this perception of myself and in, in, yeah. in how God works in the world, right? So I went to school to learn how to witness to other people. And I think I say this in the myth of the American dream, like I'm now on a trajectory to learn how to be a witness of the world. Mm, yeah. And I feel like that's what God wants all of us to do. We have to witness the good and the bad. We have to speak the truth of the world as it actually is. And we have to engage with a God we believe is actively listening and present. All of this sounds easy, but it's not. It's really hard to do this work of showing up, paying attention, being curious, and then trusting we have an actively loving God listening to us, especially if you do start to pay attention to how hard things are for people, right? It, it naturally brings up a lot of questions we maybe would, would rather not deal with. And so I think for me, I just want to follow God. I, I see Jesus as being the, the liberator, yeah. the one who came to tell us that God loves us. And yeah. Jesus is everything to me. And so I, I would never want to say I don't want to talk about Jesus to my friends because I do. But I think at the same time, it's it's a little bit easier for me to say, I think it's time for me to talk about Jesus with my own community, yeah. right? Because, and I mean, you probably have experienced this too. It's like we all have a lot of work to do. <laughs> and yeah. our religious communities have really become tangled up in some of these dominant culture values where we still need to be talking about Jesus to each other. And mm -hmm. we still need to be saying, are we truly being discipled to follow mm -hmm. Jesus? Mm -hmm. So I, I guess right now I am focusing a bit more on my community but I hope I'm consistent, you know, wherever I am to say, this is why I do what I do. Right. And I think that's your message. And I know I, I didn't mean to ask you that, like an accusatory statement. No, it's I think. great. I mean, it's a, it's a real question a lot of people have. So thank you. I thank you for asking it. But you are, you're showing up and you're being Jesus. 
instead of force upon one time, believe this and leave. I mean, you are, you are being the hands and feet of Jesus. You are listening. You are being there. And I think that's the point and that's the message that we overlook so often. Can you, and I know the stories of the refugees you share in your book, but I think that's just such an important part to share just a little bit and why that experience made you, encourage you to write this book. And one of the things you ask one of the refugees is you ask them, which was better, America or Africa? And I think that's a, just a powerful statement in itself. And I'm sure something that you see and experience a lot where you're at. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's from my first book, Assembly or Go Home. Is it? Okay. And I have my notes yeah. all written and I told you I read no, no, both it's of great. them. So. <laughs> I, think it, I think it all runs together. But yeah, I was asking this, this young man um, about kind of about his experiences in the refugee camp in Kenya and his experiences in the United States. And it was after knowing him a few years, he was able to just tell me like, you know, both places are the same. Like both places are really, really hard. And I think that was so difficult for me as an American to hear because when I asked him that question, you know, like which place is better to live? I, I thought for sure he'd say the United States because mm -hmm. of all the things I'd heard about refugee camps and the mental images I had in my mind of um, this one camp, you know, in particular in Kenya. And so just to hear from someone, and, and, and I truly believe if we do enter into relationships with people and in the spirit of mutuality and people are able to be honest with us, like it's a really um, sharp gift mm -hmm, <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to experience. And so when he was able to be honest and say, like, it's just as hard here as it was yeah. in a refugee camp, right? That I am forced to have to reckon with some questions and assumptions, right? Yeah. At that point. And then I think naturally after experiencing it from the sidelines, how hard it was for them, um, you know, naturally the questions kind of continue on into religion. Like if my country is really not good news for everybody, like mm -hmm. is my faith really good news for people who aren't just like me? Yeah. Just entering into all these delightfully difficult <laughs> questions that I think I'm probably going to be asking for a long time. Yeah. And we all should be. And his answer, we all really should be thinking about because we look at like, oh, it's just a privilege to come into this country and everybody has equal rights and but it's not the case for our refugees i mean we're that's uh, this political administration is a whole other conversation but i think oh my gosh <laughs> i think in itself though it's important that we look at this country for refugees and what what they are actually getting here and how hard it is for them. So just as we're on hard topics, one of the statements in your book that I think is so relevant that I want to dive into for kind of the last part of our conversation is I was reading this morning, finishing up, I highlighted um, in your newest book, you say white supremacy is a foundational element of the myth of the American dream. And that is a hard one for white privileged people like ourselves to really get mm -hmm. our minds around, but it's so so true. And I think so, <laughs> I think I know so much of this American dream stems from that. So talk a little bit about that, whichever direction you want to go with it. Um, right now, it's obviously big news um, about the African-American boy that was was shot and killed. And we see it right there in front of us and goes directly back to this, that the American dream is not the same for everyone. Yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's such a hard topic to talk about because it is just the air we breathe. And, and that mm -hmm. goes back to the dominant culture idea of when you grow up white in the United States, it's really hard to talk about white supremacy because you only experience the positive effects of it. And that, you know, again, that doesn't mean your life is amazing in every respect. It just means like you are not actively experiencing 
um, the systemic oppression that other people are. And so um, that's one thing, you know, that social media has really been able to open some people's eyes to these things. I, I share one really, really hard story in the book that was really hard for me to include about a part of my own realization was having a conversation with somebody I really love and that was really important to me. And they were like just really calmly explaining to me why Trayvon Martin deserved to die. Yeah, I read that this morning and on the heels of this story. And that's what I thought. Wow. Yeah. yeah here we, here we and, are again. Yeah. And so I was trying to have like a logical conversation with this person. Again, this person I really love. And they were very logical, very calmly. You know, they listened to conservative talk radio that had these talking points about, you know, all this stuff. And I didn't, I didn't have talking points. And I ended up basically wailing, like Mm -hmm. crying to the point of like yelling almost. And in my mind, I lost the argument, right? Because I wasn't logical. I was just wailing. And now I look back on that experience and I'm like, that is an appropriate response when somebody is an apologist for death. Yeah. Yeah. It's appropriate to wail, like as if you're at a funeral, because we are at a funeral, right? We were at yeah. a funeral for Trayvon Martin. We're at a, fu- a funeral for um, Ahmad. And I-, I just feel like engaging in this Christian response of lament, like learning how to lament the evils of the world instead of just immediately going into defensiveness or trying to explain it away, uh, using logic. I just, I'm at the point right now where I can't, I can't do that. And I'm not going to apologize for um wailing <laughs> you know i'm not yeah, gonna apologize yeah. for mourning and because we need to one... be do, we need to be doing more of that i mean really as I white think americans so. that's that's what we need to be doing is not making excuses we need to be in deep sorrow and lament over this and it doesn't sound to me like even as i'm talking to like this doesn't sound like a great first step in combating white supremacy but i don't know what else to say <laughs> right? right except right I want us to mourn. That's mm-hmm. that's what well, I want. Well, and it's acknowledging just what the atrocities in this country, I think. I mean, like you, I'm struggling in this area. Okay, I am white and privileged. And what do I do? I can't relate. But I think it is like acknowledging and just lamenting is a first step. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why lament is such a powerful part of scripture is because it tells the truth of the world exactly as it is. It, you know, is engaging with a God who's listening. And then once you say it out loud, like once you grieve, you are now sort of like implicated in changing that system that leads to death. You know? And so I think it is eventually calling us toward action, but we can't rush to that we have to start with with the grieving and, and following obviously people who who are going to be the first to grieve this. I don't think we would know about any of these people if it weren't for like the public lament and witness right. of communities of color, especially Christians that, that I follow now. Right. And that again goes back, social media is a great tool right now because there are yeah. so many African-American Women that we can look to for just for our lead on this, I guess. And and, but the chapter that you're talking about that, again, I read this morning about your deep wailing over um, when you experience experience this with the other person you talked about, like Jesus is about justice and 
how can followers of Christ accept the reality that this is part of God's plan, this white supremacy, this not this country that's not equal. And I think that's the other thing that we as Christians have to look at because it's really easy to stay in our white world and be like, well, it doesn't really affect me or gosh, that's that's really tough for them or gosh, that is sad. But there's a lot more. Like if we are really Jesus followers, this is a big, big deal. I mean, moving forward, like there, we, we're leaving people, we're, we're throwing a lot at people. <laughs> how, how do we move forward? There's so much here. I guess that, like, what is, what's your goal for your, for the readers of your book and for your message and moving forward? I think I shared this on Instagram the other day, but when I was writing the book, I had this little note card that I would look at all the time and it had two words on it and the words were connect and unsettle. And, and those mm. are the, the two values I think I went in my writing. So I didn't, I wrote the book as a series of essays because I do really want to invite people into just question things, have some thoughts. I don't want to come off as the expert. I'm just someone who is trying to pay attention, trying to be curious and ask a lot of questions. And so I would love to invite people into a life uh, that has space for a few more questions. And it's really hard right now. Like we are in the midst of a global pandemic uh conspiracy theories are just like everywhere because we we are like clean clinging to this really big need for safety security and certainty (laughs) and so we are trying to find it in some deeply unhelpful ways i believe and so i understand that's like a really hard ask right now but it is going to lead to spiritual emotional social and economic flourishing for all. And so I think my my big goal with the book really is to say, you know, as someone who grew up firmly in this subculture of white American evangelicalism, I was not given a framework for the common good. And now I am trying to be on a journey where my life is not all about me and my little nuclear family or even my little church community, right? I am trying to live my life where I would ask myself, like, is this good for the people who are the most marginalized in our neighborhood, right? Yeah. And sort of shifting the focus. And so, you know, I'm just trying to build up the muscles to think more about the common good and think a little bit less about my personal rights and liberties. So, I, I mean, that's a whole mixed bag in there. But yeah, I do want to reiterate, it does kind of suck at some points, but the Jesus so was never joy. about our comfort. That's what I kept telling right. myself with this book. Perfect example. Jesus does not care about our comfort. And this is the work that you've got to put in to start getting uncomfortable. And that's yeah, what your book I do, is about. I do think one thing I, I do say a, a little part in the book is, um, you know, I, I, t- I tend to sometimes think Jesus is like a really intense activist, right? With mm-hmm. a severe looking face and all this stuff. <laughs> um, but there are, you know, parts of scripture that, that say otherwise, right? That, like, Jesus actually had this reputation <laughs> as being someone who like, partied too much. He ate too much food and, you know, he was hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people. And to me, that's why I actually end up writing a ton about food. It's sort of like a little theme in my, in my books. I write about cupcakes and I write about like the meals my neighbors Mm -hmm. cook for me and all this stuff, because to me, food is such an interesting way of looking at resilience building in community and the joy we can find when we feast together. You know, even though the world isn't perfect, as we follow Jesus into these places where he always said he would be, which is with the poor, with those who've been imprisoned, with those who are blind and with those who've been oppressed, you know, as we follow Jesus into those spaces, it's not just 
a dour thing. Like Jesus went to those spaces and he had parties. <laughs> like he really mm-hmm. did. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind too. Yeah. I think that's, that's good. And that's a good, good note to end on. Can you tell us where, where we can find you if we want to buy your books, if we want to engage with you, you have a blog and do you have a podcast too? Did I find that when I was searching? I do have a podcast. It's very niche. It's my, okay. me and my husband. We uh, it's called the Prophetic Imagination Station, okay. and we like dissect evangelical artifacts from the eighties and nineties, like okay. Adventures in Odyssey and Frank Peretti. <laughs> okay, okay. So where can very we find? Funny. We I, I listened to a little bit of it yesterday, and so current or a past, but it's no. It's there. We're, okay. we're doing it now, and we okay. actually have an entire episode on conspiratorial thinking. If if you want to listen to that, okay, and then. Okay. Um, I have a website, DL Mayfield. I, I'm not really actively blogging right now, but I'm very active on Twitter. I'm very spicy. If you okay. want to find me there as D underscore L underscore Mayfield. And then, yeah, I'm on Instagram and all those things. And you can buy the book wherever you want. I am kind of excited because I actually have an audiobook of The Myth of the American Dream, which do. I don't know if, if it's, it's hard right now to read anything. So I mm-hmm. very much get that. But um, Okay. Did you do the audio for it? Or no, it- I, I auditioned for it and they said no. <laughs> really? Is that how that works? I just assumed you got to say, like, you want to read it. Huh. No, I mean, they do need professionals and I, and okay. I get that. Okay. Well, like I said, you have another book too. Your first book was Assimilate or Go Home. And I recommend that one just as much as I recommend The Myth of the American Dream. They are both, although challenging books, they're encouraging in their own way. And they're books that we need to, we need to read to develop those muscles and take a deeper look at this life that we're living as Jesus followers, as Americans and what that means. So I just, I appreciate your voice so much. And I, again, I hope I wasn't, I didn't mean to like dog on your book that it's too hard. It's hard in a great way. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you for your honest feedback. Thank you for listening in on this hard but necessary conversation. I hope it's left you wanting to dive in deeper to DL's message and book so you can examine your own life and our call as Christians to love our neighbors well and what it truly means to follow Jesus. As always, you can find links to where to find DL and order her books at herstoryspeaks.com.